0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'll be your host for today. I'm here with Dr. Kevin Simpson, the author of what I think is really just a cracking, fascinating book uh, called Soccer Under the Swastika, Stories of Survival and Resistance During the Holocaust. Uh, Welcome, Kevin, and thank you very much for joining us.
1: Very glad to be here. Thank you. Kevin, can I
0: uh, ask you just to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Certainly. Actually, I'm a a trained psychotherapist uh, by background. Over the years, uh, most of my early professional experience was in um, counseling psychology, but as I grew to uh, work in the field, I found that my passion for teaching really surpassed uh, the clinical work I was doing. And so, It was early enough on that I was able to kind of switch directions a bit, but I was primarily trained to be a therapist. That said, I've been teaching now for well over 20 years and have really grown to love um, teaching undergraduates. And so where I teach now is a private liberal arts college in Northwest Arkansas. I'm actually teaching at my alma mater called John Brown University, uh, not named for the abolitionist for our historians in the audience, but rather for an evangelist here in the area, but um, yeah, just, just love teaching in social psychology. I've, I've developed uh, a specialty area in the last decade in the psychology of the Holocaust, and that is really where this book uh, rose out of.
0: Great. Uh, can you tell me then a little bit more about how this book developed, how you developed this interest in the Holocaust, and, and what kind of uh, work you had to do to produce such, a, such an interesting work?
1: Well, it would begin by saying I'm a bit of an accidental historian, and I don't make any apologies for that because um, I've, I've always loved history. I frankly wish I'd paid a bit more attention when I was an undergraduate myself in my history <laughs> classes, Western Civ, that kind of thing, but uh, really grew into this field through the guidance of a couple of close colleagues uh, several years ago, both of whom were historians. In fact, we developed a course together on the history and psychology of the Holocaust, and When you really get into uh, the field or this particular field, you you realize that these are really um, closely compatible uh, disciplines with which to look at the Holocaust. uh, When you consider uh, perspectives of the victims, the the social circumstances, some of the prevailing forces that not only preexisted during the war, but certainly propelled both the war and the genocide forward forward. but really, the, the book grew out of my um, preparation for teaching uh, the numerous classes I've taught, both in social psychology and then, of course, psychology of the Holocaust. I've probably taught that course now probably five or six times. It's often an alternating class, but in my schedule. But um, I kept coming across uh, compelling memoirs of prisoners in, in camps and in ghettos, even and they were often uh, playing soccer during their downtime if they had any. Of course, these were prisoners of the Nazi state, which was driven, of course, ultimately to exterminate as many people as they could, particularly of of the Jewish uh, descent, but uh, kept coming across not only memoirs, but photographs of of soccer existing in these places meant to destroy and and kill. And it just stumped me initially, but uh, the more I dug into uh the the work the the, the archives the literature uh, found more and more stories and I realized well uh, beyond maybe uh an initial sort of conference paper or something of that sort there were there were a lot more stories here and so what was born out of a conference paper uh, probably I guess, I guess 4 years ago now on the camp uh ghetto Terezin, which is known as the terezian stats in the Nazi state um that turned into a book and again it's uh I really wanted to tell the story, frankly, of the survivor, of course, of those who didn't make it as well. Um, as we get farther into this conversation, I'm certainly glad to, to talk about uh, those who, who certainly perished but uh, used soccer for a time to uh, hold on to hope. Uh, the, the, the many spectators that uh, we learn about in the, in, the, in the stands, in the ghettos, in the camps uh, were very emboldened by the soccer that was played in these places. and so. It really was born out of my teaching and then the research uh, took off from there. Um, one crucial or several crucial aspects of my preparation for this were fellowships that I did through the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. I also did um, uh, a bit of a research stint at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem and these were pivotal for developing the, the historical context for me. Um, I think I was Pretty familiar with basic research methods coming out of the psychological tradition, but uh, there was a lot I needed to learn about context, um, um, how to collect and understand memoirs. I had a lot of good help in terms of translation along the way. Uh, so that was key because frankly, I, I don't speak um, German, Hungarian, uh, Czech, any of the other languages from which these memoirs were based. So uh, I really was born out of my teaching.
0: Yeah, actually, I'd, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about how you got into all of these sources, because one of the things that I found impressive about your work is just its broad scope, encompassing soccer in occupied countries, in the Netherlands, in, in uh, Bohemia, and in, in Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia, but also all throughout the different phases of the Holocaust, and in, in the in the interwar period as well. And so you just have this really broad scope. And I, I'd wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you discovered so many of these sources. I know from my own research as a sports historian, it's really hard to find stories about sports because they're often not what people chose to write about because they're sometimes considered to be less important. But then you find all these interesting little nuggets about them, and you it makes you curious, why Why was this
1: happening, right? Right. That's exactly it. The, the stories, I think, especially from the survivor perspective, were seen as maybe trivialities. Um, it mattered to them, certainly for those who survived, because it was often a means for survival, protection, privilege, this sort of thing. Uh, but I, I guess part of what Helped me be thorough was uh, part of my personality. And you might expect a psychologist to say that, but it's a real desire to get the stories right because I know that if I was too selective or if I followed a story that was too maybe sensational, um, I'd be really missing the broadest picture. And so I tried to be, of course, historical and linear, but. Um, the stories primarily came from the prominent um, camps themselves, so Dachau, Auschwitz, and then the further I got into memoirs again, uh, some of the archivists um, in places like Auschwitz, Dachau, um, Sachsenhausen in, near Berlin, uh, they were quite forthcoming with whatever testimonies they had. And, and honestly, they're 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 kind of low in number or, or scarce rather. But um, really, the work then meant. Um, often having to get either full transcripts or then, of course, translation of those sources once they kind of trickled in. So um, I didn't have a robust research budget necessarily, but I'm quite indebted to the the archivists and historians at the different camps. And I I was very um, intent on hitting all the major camps uh, that would have been uh, kind of the umbrella camps for all the satellites that might have existed. Mauthausen is a prime example of that in, in Austria. As it sits there above the Danube, it's in a a geographically beautiful place. But, of course, it's the most heinous of the Nazi work camps because it was uh, the only camp that essentially was designed to to starve and and kill by labor um, in the Nazi system. But um, I tried to, again, be as systematic as I could with all the camps, the major ghettos. Uh, There were a lot of gaps as well. For instance, I expected to find a lot in uh, the French camps, um, and, and really came up short there. I was kind of surprised by that. I think, again, if there's a follow-up work to this, I would like to go deeper into some of those sources. But um, Germany and Poland, and then a bit, of course, in the, in the, Czech, the Czechoslovakia uh, was where I was able to, to, to glean those resources. But um, I still, in fact, have a few testimonies from Sachsenhausen and Neuengamma near Hamburg that that need to be looked at more deeply. But um, I guess my, my good fortune was uh, to be handed a number of these documents because nobody was really interested in them before, um, especially, again, transcripts of interviews that maybe were done shortly after the war or memoirs that had been recently released. That's, that's kind of a, an odd uh, coincidence of timing here that some of the, the memoirs I relied on that were really crucial to tell the story of, of – uh, Terezin and then also Auschwitz, even the, the work camp at Monowitz uh, came from survivors who wrote their, their memoirs just in the last decade or so, maybe not even that long ago. Uh, really fantastic uh, memoir of a, of a man named Pavel Wiener, who was a child in Terezin and his book came out just a few years ago as well. So I was the beneficiary of, of, of later testimonies, later memoirs as well. So, yeah, that's, that's probably the, the broader overview. Um, when I think about some of the really crucial testimonies, some of them had, had been published in, in other uh, forms. Um, the one that still sticks with me today is the the very, very brief account of the doctor who worked with Mengele at Auschwitz. He um, was a Hungarian doctor uh, named Niklas Nisli. Uh, we, we we value his work for its in-depth um Explanation or, or testimony of what was happening in the experimentation labs of Mengele, um, even even the crematoria, and the Zonderkommando, who again were tasked with that atrocious duty. Uh, but it, there's a very brief um, passage in there that I corroborated with a, another couple of testimonies that initially we thought this was apocryphal sort of accounting uh, by the by the doctor there at Auschwitz. But uh, the the game between um, the SS and the, the Zonderkommando, which, again, would have been very brief, maybe a moment in time. Uh, but once, we were able to, once I was able to corroborate it with a, another source or two, uh, was able to really find that uh, this, this beyond belief sort of account of, of the Nazis actually playing the prisoners, whom, again, were destined to death just a few months after their service in the, in the crematoria, uh, just, again, astounded me. And so I really wanted to get the stories right and, and make sure that we're cross-referencing that way.
0: Yeah, I, I, I was very impressed with the way in which you were kind of able to draw from so many different sources to create this textured account of what happened, especially in your chapter on the Liga uh, Terezinstad or Liga Terezin. Um, I think let's perhaps go a little bit uh, chronologically in, in the way in which your book is ordered. And let's look at the, the uh, interwar period. Because one of the things I found interesting is the way you're able to s- describe how soccer became politicized in Germany first emerging and, and becoming popular after the first world war in some in some respects and then becoming politicized by the Nazi state. So can you tell me a little bit about how how this happened and and uh, what 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 in particular the role of people like Hans von Schammer and Austin who I really think has a name out of a pension novel right how, how these characters were able to take, uh, this game, which previously had many people had argued for its apolitical, apolitical effects and turn it into a tool of the state.
1: Yes. In fact, that was one of the areas I probably ought to have mentioned earlier that in my teaching here at, at John Brown, um, one of the first places I was able to really bring in, um, the Holocaust, World War II was in my social psych- psychology class when we talk about propaganda, persuasion. And uh, there's, again, a rich history of research in social psychology in this area. Some of the most famous studies that have been done have been done in this area. But that for me was a, was a natural draw because I knew, of course, of the Berlin Games in 1936, how the Nazis were able to essentially keep the, uh, the forces of um, resistance basically worldwide, you know, boycotts, this sort of thing at, at arm's length because they could really choreograph and orchestrate um, the games themselves. But the Nazis basically, like they did so often, um, imitated uh, previous, previously successful sort of endeavors. And the, the fascists in Italy were the, the prime example of how sport uh, was, was frankly easily corrupted. Um, the players themselves, of course, were, were in a, almost a no-win sort of position because they loved to play the game. They realized that the political forces at that time, of course, were ascendant. Uh, Dominant, um, but for me that was the draw. And the interwar period, I think, is essential to telling the story of of soccer during the Holocaust because we can see why the Nazis eventually wanted to use it for a time until the war, of course, turns against them. Um, But they wanted to use it at the time because they saw how popular the game had become in the 20s, especially the 1930s as well, with uh, the World Cup um, garnering the world's attention and so on. And of course, it's Mussolini's fascists who made the most of it with. Uh, the victories in 1934 and 1938 in the World Cup. Of course, all the photographs with Mussolini in the, in the national team. I really wanted to include those in my book, but it was just a bit, a bit farther afield than I than I could. Um, but when the Nazis kind of get a hold of the game, they had some trial runs with uh, the matches against the English. And there were two matches in particular that stand out, um, 1936, 1938. And, Again, this is the era, era of appeasement, especially from the British perspective. They, they realize the horrors of World War I. They, they want to avoid those. And uh, sport as, again, a, an extension of the state uh, was, was certainly uh, part of the British story as well. Uh, but again, the, the Nazis essentially are imitating what the fascists had done successfully, but they never really quite got it right. And part of it was that even amid the passion for soccer that especially the German uh, populace had, um, they still tried to bring it back around to particular Nazi ideals. And that's where, again, when you have uh, men like von Schalmer, um trying to bring in the, the, the Nazi state into it, they, they really don't understand the sport. And again, this, this may seem a triviality when, in fact, um, enemies of the state have already been rounded up for a number of years in the, in the Nazi uh, scheme of things. But, um the games that mattered were, of course, against the, the presumed masters of the game. And of course, those were the British. And so when the games are played in Berlin and then later on um, on English soil, uh, the Germans are, are not going to win these games, uh, but they enjoy the propaganda victory they, uh, they offer. In fact, when I teach about this uh, uh, here at JBU, um, I'm always mindful to use uh, the clip that shows, again, the, the notorious, the infamous Nazi salute that... Uh, uh, the English Give in May 1938. Uh, this is, again, a match that's played, um, again, with the, the the storms of war gathering, basically. And um, there, there are interviews later on. And it, it's fantastic to compare the interviews right after the match when you look at the newspapers, especially the British newspapers, of the players, the British players themselves. Um, and then later on, Stanley Matthews, the famous winger of that era, uh, certainly, one of the best British players ever. Uh, you look at his uh, kind of account after the match, and they they weren't bothered by it much. Uh, of course, they don't know what's to come. You know, just a mere eighteen months later in terms of World War II, but um, they weren't bothered by it much. The, the the demand, the request made by the FA for them to give the salute, uh, again they they did it. Um, a few were bothered, but it's it's later on when uh, the significance of that moment is better realized that. Uh, there's a bit of revisionism there. And in fact, some sports historians and writers have, have recognized this tendency. And you know how this is when we when we read sports memoirs. We, we, we're careful. Uh, but, but in this instance, there's, there's certainly some revisionism there. And, and Matthews later on realizes that um, they were disgusted by it. But in fact, when you look at the accounts, uh, that really wasn't the case. It's just fascinating that when you really look at the player accounts, and you see this, I think, in the survivor accounts as well, um, that really is fascinating to compare again what was happening in the era with what um, is perceived and better understood in the years that followed. But uh, for me, that, again, was crucial to telling the story later on because um, you you need to understand the ascendancy of the game. Uh, one of the books that was really influential to me in my work is uh, the book by David Goldblatt, uh, The Ball is Round. Uh, and Great book, yeah. Yeah, I highly recommend that to your listeners. Um, But he, again, reminds us that it's not just a European sort of phenomenon. Of course, Europe um, may be, again, the birthplace of the game. Maybe some debate there. But um, that it's, of course, South America that really takes on the game with that full-throated passion, uh, which, of course, is why Uruguay wins the very first World Cup. um, And we see, again, the game propelled from there. One of the things
0: I think you're able to do really well in the first few chapters of the book is integrate this history of soccer in with the story of, of German expansion before World War II, in particular with the Anschluss and then German inability to integrate so many of these great Austrian players from this Wunder team into the German team and how that leads to, in some ways, to their failure in the, in the 38 uh, World Cup. And so I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about how this German uh, this German inability to incorporate these wonder team players is also in some ways related to the history of German uh, or of Jewish soccer in in the in Central Europe. And to what extent is is Jewish uh, are Jewish footballers kind of creating this Central European uh, football story?
1: Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, I, I think the the story of uh, the Austrian brilliance in that era, especially in the early 30s, along with what would come later on in the Hungarian sort of brilliance that we see lasting even into the, the 1950s, is really important. Yeah, these magic Magyars, exactly. right? <laughs> um, one of the stories that again captivated my interest in this was the story of Matthias Sindelar. So after the Anschluss, when essentially this brilliant um, Austrian team, which again competed at very, very high levels, had an unbeaten streak that uh, was almost unparalleled for the era, uh, when they were forced essentially to to blend with their their, their German um, now compatriots, um, it was doomed from the very start because, in fact, you had, and this was true for many of the footballers who came from the streets of Vienna and even from places like Budapest and Prague, uh, whether or not they were Jewish, many of these players liked, like the Brazilian players of today and, and maybe Argentine as well, they came from these very um, poor sort of backgrounds. And uh, Sindelar was an example of this. So in as much as they developed their cultured, sophisticated football, well, it, it, it comes from these proletariat kind of roots. And again, the Nazis would would, would reject this um, out of hand because they would see this, of course, as a, uh, as a refutation of, of, of their notion, of course, of, uh, Uh, superior races. But um, when you really get down into that, um, into that history uh, with, with players like Matthias Sindelar, again, I'd love to have your, somebody needs to write a biography, uh, an English biography of of this man, because um, there's this famous story of, of the the Anschluss match when uh, the Austrians are going to be playing the Germans. Um, There's this story again, of Sindelar, who is a little bit later in his career, but still, shows these flares of brilliance um, where he scores, again, a goal against this uh, this German squad, supposedly, again, to um, bring together the two teams. But um, he comes back to the, the center box at midfield and, and essentially dances a jig, um, gets away with as much as he can there without going too far over the line. But uh, the Austrian fans, of course, are rapturous uh, because they – there's just a, a, a longer-lasting, I think, animosity to, to, to Germany for a number of reasons, and, and some of this does come, of course, from um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the history that Austria has of of always looking over their shoulder uh, for Germany, who's of course wanting to expand its borders. But um, the, the the beautiful football that's played in Central Europe in this era, I think Jonathan Wilson is finishing a book on this um, kind of in this moment, um, is is part of the tragedy, frankly, of of, of the Jewish story in Central Europe. Besides the Holocaust that, again, will will descend upon Central Europe in the years that followed, uh, before World War II, um, the most innovative coaches, uh, the Meisel brothers are an example of this, are coming from, again, Central Europe. Uh, the most creative football, the formations that are played. Again, Wilson has written about this in Inverting the Pyramid. Um, it, it's all coming from this. And, and Many of the footballers, of course, are of, of Jewish descent, of Jewish background. Um, but when, when you really do look at that history, um, it's that that birth of the brilliance where players learn the game on their own, much like uh, I think we'd see with basketball here in the United States, where players can – and learn creativity without too much coaching. Certainly need to learn the techno, technical side of the game and, and, and be fluid that way. But uh, that's really where this is coming from. And, and again, some of the most innovative coaches are are, are in, uh, in that Jewish tradition. Uh, we, we see this in the story of Hakoa Vienna. Uh, they win the championship in, in Austria in 1926, I believe. And again, many of those Jewish players go on to influence uh, many, many other teams. Bella Gutman's example of this, I didn't spend much time in my book talking about him, but there's a recent uh, biography by, I think his name is pronounced David Bolkover, uh, a journalist in England who published this just in the last year. And his influence on teams like Benfica and, and some other teams in, in uh, South America, I believe, is, is just astounding. And it's just one example of many of these Jewish footballers in Vienna, Hakoa Vienna being this, uh, this birthplace of some of these coaches and players, and that, that spread. And certainly uh, teams like MTK in, in Budapest, um, another example there. And it, it, that's part of the tragedy as well, that some of these footballers were lost to the, to the Holocaust, Arpad Weiss, uh, a number of other footballers who, who simply didn't survive the war but before were very influential again in their play. Uh, their 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 technique and again, their, their, their vision for what football could be.
0: Yeah. I, and I think that's one of the th- things that your book really does. And I think why, one of the reasons why it's important for people to read is that it recaptures in, in many ways, the history of this Jewish athleticism in central Europe in the years before the war. I think there's a trope in, and it certainly was common in, in, this time in Nazi propaganda that Jews were effete and, and uh, over urbane and therefore not athletic. And that was part of the reason why uh, this intermixing between Jews and Germans. And here I'm nobody, can, nobody can see this, but I'm giving scare quotes uh, would, <laughs> would contribute to the degeneracy of the German race. But actually there's this amazing history of Jewish athleticism and, and, that athleticism continues in in very surprising places in your book. And I would turn us now to chapters four, six, and eight, and I'm going to give the names of the chapters here for people who don't have the book in front of them. But the beautiful game in the KZ or in the Koncentrationslager, right? Football in the Polish killing fields, eyewitnesses to Nazi terror, and ghetto soccer in the Liga Terezín. I, I'm wondering if you can tell us, more about how soccer emerges in these places, in the concentrations lager, in Terezin, even in Auschwitz. Uh, and it, why are people playing uh, soccer there? That seems so astounding, but you sh- just show in each instance that it's happening everywhere. So I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Certainly.
0: I'd,
1: I'd probably prefer to take them by their unique sort. Of- Locale, okay. partly because the camps themselves change over the course of the war. Um, Dachau is a prime example of this. Uh, some of the very first photos I came across in my, in my research uh, were of uh, prisoners playing in Dachau just a few months after it opened. So this would be June 1933. Uh, two of them appear in my book. And, and to be brief, um, you see men running around in tattered clothing they are barefoot. Uh, they're kicking around that old leather ball. Um, But, of course, these were propaganda photos that were distributed to the the newspapers in Bavaria. And, again, these prisoners most likely would have been um, communists, social democrats, um, anarchists, possibly. So, in other words, political enemies of the the state. And they weren't necessarily Jewish initially, but we find that as you go, again, across uh, both time and locale – the game really does have a unique sort of way of, of popping up. Another example of this is when you see stories of boxing, um, even track and field events uh, popping up in camps. Boxing is probably the, the second most popular pursuit in part because the prisoners themselves, especially if they were maybe of a Polish uh, background, this might be a way for them in a, in a more leveled sort of way to extract a type of revenge, It might be boxing a, a German kappa who was a criminal who's lorded over them for uh, months uh, as a way again to get inside the ring and get a few licks in, basically. But um, Dachau, the game wasn't as well organized as it was in other places. When I when I think about where it emerged most prominently, Terezin is the most well known example. It had the the best organization. I'll come back to talking about that here in a second because we know the most about it, but. Um, the game was also played in Mauthausen, again, depending on where the uh, the camp was or ghetto was in, in terms of its um, contribution to the Nazi devastation. Um, the game, again, might have appeared for a time and then went dormant, went away, and then new prisoners came through who maybe were uh, deported later in the war, maybe of health, healthier body, more stronger constitution. In other words, from the start, they hadn't been starved in a ghetto, and so they were able to play. But Um, Mauthausen, again, we we have the most records we have are very late in the war. And again, these were prisoners who had maybe been in the camp longer. So they had protected status, uh, what we call prominent sort of status. Um, um, Again, the the accounts are rather scattered. So when we go to other camps like Neuengama or Sachsenhausen, again, the the game kind of emerges for a year, maybe 18 months, and then it goes away. Buchenwald is an example of this as well. But Uh, Within Terezin, again, it's just a a remarkable case because um, the prisoners who maybe were there from 1942 on, maybe if they're able to survive until the the deportations in late 1944, um, they might have, again, been known before their arrival by train car. And so many of these players would have been plucked from uh, the registration line early on and uh, taken again to a, a special barracks maybe where again they were uh, given extra food if they were already assigned to a team and that 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 was one of the most bizarre details for me when i looked at the league at terezin that on mondays there would be um essentially a transfer list that would have been submitted so players who might have been deported again not to be too glib about this but um players who've been quite frankly deported to their to their death uh, auschwitz was the next stop basically after uh terezin. but uh, there would be a uh, uh, an afternoon sort of um, reassignment of players, any players that came in, uh, like a transfer window basically, and, and players reassigned. So um, just it shows just how important the league was to not only those who ran it, uh, but those, of course, who played in it and, and those who were spectators as well. Um, but in terms of linking of that all together, um, I think it's important to note that the, the leagues themselves were pretty idiosyncratic to the side. I know I said that earlier, but it bears repeating. For instance, in Gross Rose in a camp um, in Silesia, basically near Wroclaw in in western Poland, um, there was a league there in the the dusty uh, Apoplatz, the the gathering center where, of course, prisoners were forced to to stand for hours on end. But uh, again, there was a league there for a time until again, the war goes against the Nazis and players are sent either on marches or by train back into Germany proper. But um, a little bit more about Terezin, if I could. Um, again, the, the league emerged uh, fairly early on, 42-43. The first competitive matches were played. Um, there were, in fact, special cup tournaments that were often held. Um, the There were amateur leagues. There were youth leagues. Uh, by most accounts, the, the games that uh, were played – at the highest level probably included as many as 600 or more uh, players at any uh, given, not any given time, over in in totality there. Um, But uh, the youth, again, were captivated by it. When you look at the the children's newspaper accounts, again, the the Jewish boys home often had newspaper, uh, newspapers that were published of different events in life in the, in the ghetto Uh, soccer featured very prominently uh, that, that, Memoir account from Pavel Wiener that I mentioned earlier, a boy in Terezin, uh, talks a lot about this. Uh, that sometimes um, headmasters or parents themselves would use the soccer matches as motivation or, in some cases, punishments uh, if a young boy misbehaved. Again, they, they of course, wanted to uh, bring back as much normalcy as possible in these places. Uh, but again, you could imagine these. Um, Spectators of whatever age going to watch these matches, especially on Sunday afternoon with the, the professional level league, uh, they'd be going there in in various stages of starvation. But yet, they drew real energy, real hope, uh, real passion uh, by watching these players play. Uh, there are a number of accounts as well where uh, players were, uh, of course, given, like I said, protection, privilege, but extra rations, and oftentimes spectators. Uh, who had maybe a personal connection to the players or maybe the kitchen who provided the rations, didn't mind giving up their ration card to a player. Uh, if maybe uh, that could sustain that player for a little bit longer. So it's remarkable the, the, the sacrifices that went on uh, to keep these games going on. Like I said, um, there were professional level um, administrators, basically referees uh, were, were there as well. There'd be disciplinary hearings and boards for players who misbehaved and um, The SS as well were were betting on the games. You see this across a number of camps as well. Uh, Buchenwald, Sachsenhausen, the SS had a vested interest in this as well. And again, depending on the commandants, uh, some of the commandants were were more permissive, more accepting of this. Uh, But oftentimes if the SS leadership came in and found out this was going on, there would often be a crackdown. Uh, Partly again, this this assumption that uh, there shouldn't be any sort of uh, hope given to the prisoners themselves. Yeah, I I it's all just
0: so um incredible in some ways. I I think there's two uh two paths of questions I'd like to go down. The first is this question that you just raised there, which is why the Nazis allowed the games to begin with. Sometimes it seems like there's maybe a sense that there's a soccer fraternity at work and that crosses culture and uh crosses the the line between uh perpetrator and victim and maybe even at times brings them close together and i'm i'm struck uh i've struck several times in, in your book by uh, accounts of of prisoners when they're playing guards shaking their hands before the game <laughs> um, yes astounding but, and then at the same time there's a sense that in some ways sports could be a punishment and here you think uh i think more of a boxing and, and people like victor young perez who uh literally uh were were you know, forced to box against people much larger than them, and and that young Perez's victories against uh, a a much larger Nazi opponent, again, gave rise to this sense of hope, but he was never expected to win, right? (laughs) So I'm wondering uh, if you could explain a little bit, tell us a little bit about why the Nazis allowed these games, how much of this is related to this broader kind of idea of a sports fraternity or, or were the Nazis using sports as a way to reify their own categories of racial superiority or what's going on here?
1: Well, I think it's all of that, but a more direct answer would be um, to recognize that, again, within the, the idiosyncratic nature of the camps, um, there certainly would be, um, I think the predominant view, let me say it this way, the predominant view would be that for most people who were able to write a memoir after the Holocaust, they remember sport in very different terms. They saw it again as an instrument of torture. Uh, there's a, a fantastic book that came out a number of years ago, uh, Watercolors and Drawings uh, by Cantor, Alfred Cantor, I believe is his name. Um, and one of those um, shows in, in very grim detail, essentially, how sport was used for the elderly and the weak to essentially break them down even further. So that's, that's the I think, the first and foremost understanding we ought to take here, that the Nazis more often use what they would call sport, gymnastics, something of this sort as a way to break people down. But in these isolated instances where there was a type of fraternity, again, it was usually done through the kapos. So the SS would would use their intermediaries, their functionaries in the camps to do this. Um, but in some case, cases, it would be part of the corruption as well, again, depending on the betting schemes that were part of it. But... Um, there are instances where there, there seems to be a, a more leveling sort of effect, and, and you more often found this outside of the SS control, where there might be a Wehrmacht soldier or um, players who were assigned to a, a Luftwaffe detail um, who were playing in a league. That, the prime example of this were, were soldiers from the, the, the Nazi forces playing against um, players in, in Ukraine and Kiev. Again, there was a league there. In fact, that the wonderfully campy film um, "Victory" that starred Michael Caine and Sylvester Stallone back in the '80s uh, is a blend of some of these stories. Even though it's in a POW sort of camp, um, it's based again on some of the accounts of the MK Start team. I'm sorry, the FC Start team in in um, in Kiev, a cobbled together group of former players, primarily from Dinamo Kiev, who eventually went on to play not only Yugoslavian. Um, Enlistees and, and, and other teams, but uh, prisoner-based teams, but also, of course, an SS team. Or I'm oh, sorry, a, a Luftwaffe team, and that's where you're more likely to find that um, that brotherhood of sport sort of thing. Um, there's an account you probably came across it of some soldiers playing some Jewish children in the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, Heim Ka- Kaplan remembers this in his his diary, and in fact, um, again by by all accounts that we have, which, again, are, are few, but uh, we find that this to be a, a true tale uh, of, of, the, of the Jewish boys beating the soldiers. And, again, they weren't footballers probably necessarily, but they were looking for diversion. And, and again, one thing to remember is that quite often in these ga- camps and ghettos, there was a lot of downtime. And, again, I don't want to be trivial about this, but um, both prisoners and, of course, the guards themselves are looking for diversions, and soccer was primary among them. Uh, we see this in Westerbork. Uh, some of the, the prisoner accounts there uh, are, are pretty vivid in the way they describe how the game, again, meant something uh, to the to the staff running the camp. So not only the functionaries, but, of course, the guards themselves. Um, I would add as well, when you look at Terezin, um, I think it was tolerated in part because they saw it as a pacification as well, um, a way, again, to keep prisoners from maybe um, – Thinking about insurrection, revolt, this sort of thing, as we find with some of the uh, revolts that did happen in, in, in the death camps, Sobibor and Treblinka, and eventually Auschwitz, this is when you also start to see some of these diversions start to go away. So there, the, the crackdown comes. But before that, it's a way to pass the time um, in camps, again, that had their, their moments of, of atrocity, but then moments of, of silence and, and downtime. And so I think that's part of the reason why it was tolerated. Um, also keep in mind, too, that within the SS structure, uh, the notion, again, of a physically fit uh, soldier is highly valued. And sport would be one of these examples. Uh, there's a, there are a fair number of accounts of the SS team from Mauthausen traveling uh, to even um, as far away as Berlin to play matches as well and, and vice versa. So um, this is part, again, of the, the Nazi ideal for the fit SS man. Um, and that's that's trickling down essentially into the camps, especially with the the functionaries who the inter- who are the intermediaries.
0: The other uh pathway i'd lo- i'd love to go down and and for me the real power in some ways of your book is exploring why people why prisoners in the camp played you cited at at some length in in um your chapter on Football in the Polish killing fields. Uh, Primo Levi, who talks about this gray zone, and, and that perhaps soccer was also a kind of area in which people were participating in this gray zone or living in a gray zone. Uh, I'd love to hear more about how soccer could it could work or could help contribute to the survival of both of prisoners, but also how maybe later it engendered certain uh, feelings of guilt. I wonder if you could tell us more about that.
1: So, yeah, that's a fantastic question. Let me say that um, Primo Levi, in his inimitable way, reminds us that because we often expect winners and losers in sport, we ought to really set that aside when we consider sport within the concentration camp. Because there is this moral ambiguity, as he calls it, that exists in the camp. Because in in as much as, of course, there's a hierarchy and there's a system of patronage and privilege, uh, we must acknowledge that in our expectation for winners and losers, that anytime sport is played in these places, we need to read very carefully. We need to account for this very carefully. And and the players themselves engage in this moral calculation, essentially. And let me, in fact, read a passage. Um, I just happen to have a a bookmark in that section that you're talking about, Um, Inasmuch, again, as as prisoners recognize the compromise they're making, um, there's a fantastic um, memoir account uh, of a young man named Louis de Vigia in Westerbork. He he also went on to uh, be imprisoned in uh, Monowitz and then eventually Buchenwald, Buchenwald, where he was liberated. But um, I'll, I'll get to that here in a second. But Here's what Levy has to say regarding this moral calculation. This is certainly the reason for the enormous popularity of sp- spectator sports, such as soccer, baseball, and boxing. The contenders are two teams or two individuals, clearly distinct and identifiable, and at the end of the match, there are vanquished and victors. If the result is a draw, the spectator feels defrauded and disappointed. At the more unconscious level, he wanted winners and losers, which he identified with the good guys and the bad guys, respectively, because the, go- because the good must prevail Otherwise, the world would be subverted. Again, when we recognize that the prisoners themselves may have had the simple motivation to survive, and again, the the privilege and protection that might allow, we acknowledge that guilt did come. And prisoners, there are survivors after the war asking this question of themselves anyway. Why me? Why did I survive? And especially if you were able to take advantage, quite frankly, of um, the the special protection, that's going to be amplified even more. Um, As I mentioned earlier, um, Louis de uh, again, he's a first division player before the war. Uh, He plays um, Investor Bork a bit, but also Monowitz, which there was a slave labor camp too. Um, He acknowledges that the only motivation that accounts that that really matters is is survival, of course. And um, he acknowledges that um, there are all sorts of examples of this in the camp when people are stealing from each other, when... um, you're, you're negotiating, so to speak, or what they call organizing, quote unquote. Um, you're, you're simply trying to get extra bread, covers for your feet, uh, any sort of objects that you can trade on the, on the black market. Um, this is how they live from day to day. Uh, they don't think any farther than tomorrow. In fact, um, here's, here's an excerpt from his memoir that I think explains this really well. And there's a, a great uh, rejoinder to the end of it here. We don't think any farther than tomorrow. Yesterday is gone. And when Sunday comes and your unit, thank God, doesn't have to work that day, the hours slip away like water in your hand. Those who still can walk in small groups throughout the camp. One day without yelling capos, beating guards. But for most people, a single day to regain one strength is insufficient. Sunday, for a lot of people, is just a day to start worrying about Monday. When I put on my squeaky clean, freshly ironed soccer attire and walk on the pitch with my teammates, I feel incredibly privileged compared with the masses. During that hour and a half of sports competition, nothing matters but the leather ball and the goal, just like old times. Later on, when you read his memoir, we, we find that inasmuch as he acknowledges this very special place that he inhabited in these camps, uh, we learned that during one of the, the deadly selections, um, in fact, in Monowitz, he gives up his bundle of clothing to an emaciated prisoner uh, that he calls Hugo. I believe was a Czech prisoner, and pushes the man into the line of life, and then goes back through the selection again with a very real possible real risk of he himself being selected for extermination uh, at, at I'm sorry, at, at Birkenau. Uh, and so again, there's there's a, certainly this ambiguity. Levy certainly talks about it, uh, but when you go to the, the survivors, the other survivors. Uh, we see it in, in in full picture.
0: Yeah, I think um, that's just it's just astounding reading in your book the the difficulties that many of the prisoners faced when they when they were having to to come up with the materials, the extra food um, to to make these games possible. But then at the same time, you remembered there is this uh, prementin system, so they're benefiting and in in some ways from their participation it's a really complicated story um i i i turn us now to your final chapter which in some ways i found to be really um one of my favorite maybe i i just um i, I like i liked i liked it because in some ways it turns more towards the power of sports optimism <laughs> um, but can you tell me more about how sports were being used in the DP camps, the displaced person camps?
1: Yes, it was all part of the the general motivation to restore life as best as the survivors could. Um, of course, there's a baby boom in the DP camps. Uh, synagogues, yeshivas, schools are being reestablished as quickly as possible. Um, Again, not only a return to normalcy, but a reclaiming um, Jewish life and Jewish culture. Um, Cabarets, orchestras, dramas are being put on again, Uh, but sport again emerges. And there's a very robust set of leagues in the different occupation zones. The most uh, well-attended, most uh, robust leagues, I guess you could say, were in fact in the British and American zones. And again, there are a number of accounts there. I really wanted to go farther with that particular chapter, but um, as I needed to kind of wrap things up, I, I really hit the highlights, but um, there are many more stories, I think, that come after that because my, my goal really, and I, I wish I'd mentioned this earlier in our talk today, uh, my goal was to, to bring forward these stories because as a teacher of the Holocaust, we're not too far away from losing these witnesses. They're going to be lost to history here pretty soon, and I tell this to my students all the time. Uh, you're probably going to hear this on the news, and my hope is that they feel compelled to tell others about the story. And I know that's maybe a little, little idealistic on my part, but it's pretty basic in, in that um, when we see um, Jewish survivors trying to reclaim their lives, it's also, again, a refutation, a, a, a direct rejection uh, of what the Nazis were trying to do. Uh, of course, again, they, they often targeted uh, women and children the most, uh, most devastatingly. And the DP camps, again, were a way to not only get back to one's life uh, amid the reality that probably one didn't have their family remaining. uh, But again, the the leagues themselves um, primarily were populated with uh, young men, again, who were able to survive maybe in hiding or uh, had maybe gone to the east and found protection there. Uh, But they were, again, were populated by young men, in some cases young women. Who um, again wanted to, to to get back to normal? Let, let us put the war behind us, they would say, and and, and find again the, the zeal for life that was was almost taken from us.
0: Yeah, for for many of the young men that you're writing about, it really felt like they were trying to reassert their masculinity and and in some ways re uh, capitulate themselves as a as a group of men. But uh, something you 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 touch on again and again and again is the way in which sport uh, helps these prisoners to reassert their humanity under extremely inhumane conditions. And, and so I wondered if maybe there's something unique about this story, is, is, is sport, is soccer in particular, um, was it just the most popular thing or, or is there something about sport for you that helped them in particular ways reassert their humanity in a way that maybe uh, a study of music during uh, the Holocaust or um, theater, uh, even literature, might not have been able to accomplish?
1: I think the unique contribution of sports, maybe in a way that music or literature wouldn't offer, is the collaborative nature of it. In as much as certainly you can, um, in in an orchestra, for instance, or, or reviving maybe a a work that a Jewish composer who perished in the Holocaust might've composed um, after the war. I think there's something about the collective nature of soccer that's simply fantastic. Having played the sport since I was a a young boy, uh, lucky enough to play it through my college years and in my old man leagues where I take it way too seriously. um, There's this realization that collectively Uh, soccer offers something that I think many other sports don't offer. And again, this may not be surprising for somebody who simply loves the game like I do, or we do, but um, I think it offers a sense of collectivism. And I don't necessarily mean that in a political sense, but offers a sense of collectivism because the the best teams are the ones that may not have the standout players. Um, And and when I think back, you know, 60, 70 years, what was happening right after the war uh, part of the reason why, frankly, the, the, the West German team wins the 1954 World Cup over the Hungarians is because of that collective nature that, um, with the, with the passion that comes with playing together and uh, playing within a system that that rewards real unity. Uh, I think there's there's something to be said about that in in, in this particular account as well. And, and there are other sports that may they draw upon that. I think rugby is a good example of that too. But Uh, I think there's just something unique about the beautiful game that that brings this forward where the team who shouldn't win sometimes does, or um, we again see that, that brilliance manifested again through the the shared effort. Um, What I would say about immediately after the war, maybe kind of in closing related to that is that um, in the DP camps, again, is whether or not the the games were well played. And and sometimes there is that, that, that question and Maybe it seems an irrelevant sort of question, but um, it probably doesn't matter in the, in the end, because, um, and, and you know this, I think um, if, if you play the game at all, there are those moments when you just go out for a kickabout or a pickup match, and it, it just helps you distract from whatever distractions are there. I, certainly when, when we gauge in exercise, we do the same sort of thing, but um, there's, there's one account, uh, so I can track this down. I can almost talk about it from memory here. Um, there's a, a Czech author named Ernest Lustig. Uh, he was a 15-year-old, I think, in, in stat during the war. And he talks again about his experiences playing goalie uh, in one of the matches um, at the youth level there. Um, but for him, he talks about soccer as being a, a wonderful combination between art and exercise, that the ability to create uh, among a really a brilliant sort of player like a Cindelar years ago, or a Messi, or even a Ronaldo nowadays. Um, there's just something again about the freedom that comes. That a brilliant play might not ever be replicated again in, in a particular soccer match, but we can we can appreciate it for what it is, and it's, it's really why many of us love the game. Whether or not it's a a four to three score, that sometimes we can find brilliance in a in a, in a nil nil draw. I used to teased mercil- mercilessly by my, my non-soccer-playing father for this sort of thing. But um, later on, I think he came to appreciate the game. But um, I think it really does uh, not only unite, but it, in these instances, it was defiance. Uh, there's beauty in it, uh, and this notion of, of, of possibility of, of living. Because so many did perish, right? Uh, so many accounts are, are not uh, recorded of those who love the game and, and, and perished during the war or during the Holocaust. Uh, one last little line here, if I could read, hopefully I'm not giving you too much of this here, but um, it's it's from Lustig. In fact, I closed my book with this, this excerpt, and this is the last half of it here. Um, and this is, again, a man who taught I think, at American University in D.C. well into his 60s, maybe 70s, and he was famous, Lustig was, for playing pickup matches with the international kids um, on, on the greens there of the campus there in D.C., uh, but here's what he has to say. Soccer is joy and peace, a beautiful game that changes life into joy, the gratification of defiance. Thoughts about soccer and Terezin and anywhere else, I would conclude with two sentences. Let the game called soccer live. While it is played, a person on this earth will stay human. And for me, again, that was a, a perfect way to to end the book, to, to let the survivor speak, especially, like I said, since we're We're losing so many of these survivors uh, month by month, year by year.
0: Yeah, that quote at the end of the book was so powerful. Uh, Again, I I encourage all our listeners to uh, pick up a copy of Soccer Under the Swastika Stories of Survival and Resistance During the Holocaust by uh, Dr. Kevin Simpson. Kevin, can you tell me
1: what your next project is? Given that this book kind of came mid-career and had no notions of of writing a book over the years, I'm more of kind of a a journal level sort of writer. Um, uh, I just I'm I'm captivated, continue to be captivated. In one story in particular, um, I I talk a bit about uh, a gentleman named um, Ignaz Feldman, who was part of the Hakoa Vienna team back in the 1920s. This is a man who I think in his time was very charismatic, very persuasive, but he managed to survive the war when he was part of the earliest roundup uh, because he, he was an Austrian Jew. And we see him actually at the end of the war walking around with Eisenhower and Bradley and other other, other American uh, high top military brass in the camp at Ordruf that was liberated by the Americans. And um I immediately recognize his face because he has a boxer's nose. It's tilted, I think violently to the left, but this is a man who started a league in Vesterbork. Uh, the fantastic story of him coming back on a train, hearing about uh, players playing in other parts of Europe. And he thought, well, why can't we do this in Vesterbork? And so he does this. There's not a lot known about him, but uh, I want to dig pretty deep to find those stories. It's uh, just a compelling account. Someone who probably shouldn't have survived, but, but did. And, uh, was a, was a footballer himself, so his name's Ignaz Feldman. I'm uh, lucky enough to be able to do a, a Fulbright uh, teaching fellowship in Slovakia next spring, 2019, and uh, I'll be in Bratislava just uh, a few minutes down the, the river uh, from Vienna, so I'll spend a fair amount of time over there as much as I can to uh, to research his story.
0: Wow, it sounds fascinating, and you'll have to, of course, uh, let me know when that that uh, monograph length book on Ignaz comes out. Uh, thank you again, Kevin, uh, for joining us here on New Books in Sports. This book today, again, was Soccer Under the Swastika, Stories of Survival and Resistance During the Holocaust. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy. Thank you again, Kevin.
1: Thank you, Keith. This is a real pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the New Books and Sports podcast. I'm Keith Rathbone, and we've been speaking with Kevin Simpson about his book, Soccer Under the Swastika. If you enjoyed our discussion, you will undoubtedly enjoy some of the other podcasts we have on the New Books Network. Until next time, thank you for listening.